Platforms and the use of AI technologies are growing rapidly in all the sectors of society. It brings a lot of benefits like new application innovations, but it also brings many challenges and threats like new type of a cyber attacks. Or are platforms and AI technologies just a promise? What are platforms and AI technologies of today? How will platforms and AI technologies develop in the future? Our countries and public sector role as a regulator of platforms and AI technologies demissioning, or is there too much of a regulation already? Should there be changes on innovation and industrial policy, and what kind of changes, if any? These are some of the questions uh, we cover today on the facts and myths of platform economy. Today, uh, we are two hosts uh, for the podcast, uh, Timo Seppola, uh, who is research director at ETLA and lecturer at Aalto University. My name is Robin Gustafsson, I'm professor at Aalto University, and uh, we are joined here by our three guests and experts on a platform uh, from US. Welcome everybody. John Seisman, professor, UC Berkeley. Martin Kenny, professor from UC Davis. Mark Nitschberg, director from UC Berkeley. Nice to have you all here at the studio. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's start, and and I would like to sort of uh, have this first question to to Martin, that what are actually platforms and and, and platform economy that we have been talking uh, for the last 10 to 15 years? So um, when we think about platforms, I'm thinking mostly about the online platforms, not platforms for car bodies, et cetera, et cetera. And these online platforms are essentially virtual intermediaries between various actors, buyers, sellers, YouTubers, viewers, and advertisers. It's a three-sided platform, YouTube. So that's what we're referring to when we talked, John and I, about the platform economy. And our argument was that the platform economy was reorganizing the economy of of the world so that more and more of the transactions and social interactions uh, would go through the platform. It became an intermediary, but in that sense also was powerful with having the power of the intermediary. And we believe that the platform economy and the platform firms would be, in many respects, as important to the contemporary economy as was the early factory as a way of organizing uh, early capitalism, let's say the early to mid-1800s. How do you see, Robin, that sort of a definition because I think that that uh, the definition that uh, Martin just gave is is basically a, a definition uh, for the platforms from the from the U.S. perspective and and the rise of uh, from the digital economy perspective. How do you how do you see that applying over here in Europe? Well, it doesn't 
differ actually because that's the point i think that we are connected the businesses are connected consumers become connected and markets become connected and i think that's the kind of essence of the platform economy that that is so so subtle in one sense that not only it's the production of goods and production of services that can be organized now through digital data and ai in different ways than traditionally but it's also the whole economy that is coordinated through this digital infrastructure and that is i think something that we have not seen before that everything is kind of operating through this i would call digital infrastructure that we are well having today partly you know through the internet but also partly through the you know uh, different uh, telecommunication networks and so forth so so in that sense i mean uh, it's it's fundamentally an interconnected kind of uh, economy today but still of course we have uh, geographical differences in terms of how it's regulated kind of how it's regulated that we can operate businesses in in regions mm. within this digital economy or or data economy or platform economy whatever we call it if if that is the the platform economy how it 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 could be described today that do you see sort of a, any changes coming to that are changing your thoughts on the on the definition or does sort of a platform economy continue to evolve as as it is today so i think my argument would be that it's deepening not uh, and in that sense evolving uh and absorbing more and more sectors and enforcing more and more firms and consumers drawing them into the platform e- economy because you know so, as many technologies you know when they when they're implemented in a society they transform things in such a way it's very hard to go back mm-hmm. so so to you know cash is disappearing in in countries like china with the uh plat- payment platforms and it may be very hard to go back to cash after you've moved down the path and so in that sense i think it's this constant deepening uh, of of the platform economy and therefore what it was five years ago in five more years it's likely to be yet deeper so basically what you are saying is that that the platform economy basically will be embedded into into the all sectors of the society sooner or later and and it will be basically implemented in a way or another through all the industrial sectors as as well yes and the big pa- platform firms are increasingly absorbing sec- other new sectors sort of like amazon now is one of the largest delivery companies in the united states and 10 years ago it was not an important at all in the delivery process so we're we're seeing that that aspect of the spread into more and more sectors and more and more activities so let's move to the other core thing that what is actually related quite close to uh, uh platforms ai technologies have become familiar to public audience through through the to the platform so maybe maybe mark you are the the one to to answer this one that that okay what are the what are ai technologies today and and what can they actually do when it comes to platform economy and and how do you see sort of those uh, technologies developing in the future 
AI technologies are advanced computing. And today, when we talk about AI, we're really referring to the parts of artificial intelligence that uh, depend on large amounts of data and uh, vast computing resources. Uh, the, the most common that we see on, on platforms are, are called adaptive reinforcement learning, the systems that do search and selection and determine what you'll see first and next and next in, in a news aggregator or, you know, what, what is suggested to you when you're looking at uh, something like YouTube videos or, you know, your Twitter feed and so forth. Um, and there are really the biggest change in the, in, you know, in this particular wave of AI is, is not so much the AI algorithms themselves, but the fact of bringing them together with this, you know, vast quantities of data and uh, processing power that really make it possible to do the kinds of, you know, predictions that, that wouldn't have been possible without that data. And how do you see that that these AI technologies will develop in the in the future? Well, this uh, this is a very interesting time because the, the there's a kind of maturity in some of the subfields of AI uh, that that turned a corner about ten years ago. You know, in 2010, uh, it was barely possible for a system to to recognize objects from a camera image. Uh, or to you know transcribe speech really accurately was at maybe ninety percent. It got one word wrong out of ten, and then there there was this turning of the corner using deep networks that that uh, that suddenly brought the performance of the systems up um, by again by training with large amounts of data. So now we're seeing the the in, you know instead of it being a a leading edge system that you, where you have a lot of uh, PhDs working on system to do uh, recognition or to do the the kinds of machine learning that that uh, that were that were leading edge in in 2011 2012 now it's just part of the the rising tide of available um, services and you can get a metered service to do voice transcription for you or or language translation and you can train a system to recognize things and uh, you can get a recommender system, for example, from Microsoft, and you sign up for their recommender system, and it will do the kinds of things that uh, that Facebook does in terms of presenting you with uh, with the most relevant results or relevant content for you, you know, based on your uh, your tastes and your your past behaviors. Uh, so, what's coming around the corner are more sophistication in these systems. Uh, there, there's something called large language models or foundation models that take context into account in ways that that, that, that are relatively new, uh, and that gives us really better, uh, better recommendations, more relevant, more convincing advertising in the world of platforms. That just means they're more effective. So, um, when five years ago uh, you were being, uh, you know, you go to something like. A, a retail website and you search for some ink, it would recommend a printer <laughs> because, of course, inks and printers are related. Now it's actually, when you look for ink, you don't get a recommendation of a printer. You get a recommendation for something that you're more likely to buy, like paper. Um, 
and uh, they're just getting better and better. Yeah, um, yeah. I I have seen sort of a, that change happening, and it has it has taken quite a long time that that actually that this you could identify or or separate sort of the printer from the printing powder or, or whatever mm-hmm. that that is. I think that it's it's time to sort of move on after we have now sort of covered the core definition, what the platforms are, and what AI technologies are today. Let's discuss a bit more about the platforms and industries, and and perhaps AI technologies and industries. We have seen some of these ideas uh, regarding the the platforms being implemented into farms and and, and food. Uh, Martin, you have been studying this topic for for some period of time in, in in California. Is there any insights that you can tell us about that research? I mean, in general, I do not think that platforms have had much success yet in agriculture uh, because all of these people are small businesses. Farmers don't trust giving their data to others. So in that sense... We're not seeing a lot of platformization. What we are seeing is a lot of digitalization, right, of the machinery, of uh, sensors, of image recognition. All of that is being added to, to farm machinery. And, of course, that's generating data. Then the question is, who gets the data? And, and if it's a company like John Deere, uh, then they certainly could apply AI or techniques like that to that data. In this sense, it's not a platform in the sense that there's a tra- generally a transaction going on with sides, but there is more and more data to being analyzed. There's yield maps of fields that then can be correlated with the genetics of the uh, plant that is in the in the field, and I think increasingly they're using AI to to analyze the genetics to optimize the plant genetics for the fields with particular characteristics, not for particular fields, but let's say in a field you might sow two or three different types of seeds because in the field, you know, part of the field perhaps is waterlogged, uh, part of the field is is drier, so you could genetically, uh, so variable rate applications of pesticides, variable seeding, all of this is just an absolute market for algorithmic AI type of learning. So we're seeing that. But a platform, let's say, with between the farmer and, let's say, the consumer, there are some of those coming out uh, in the sense that you could buy directly from a farmer. But they're not organizing the sector at this point in the United States in any dramatic way. Yeah. So basically, the, the marketplace is, is still the, the, the old-fashioned farmer's market, and it, it's not really sort of a digital marketplace. Well, I mean, so, of course, there are uh, platforms by which a speci- farmers can put their food uh, there so that consumers can buy them like an like Amazon, across the platform. So mm-hmm. that's going on, but it is not at this point transformative in any way. And on the industrial side, the business side, farmers don't like to share their data with uh, John Deere or anybody else because they feel the data might be used against them. 
How do you see, Robin, this applied in, in other industrial? Is it applicable to other industries, what Martin was pointing out over here? I mean, de- de- definitely. I mean, it has been harder for to develop these, I guess, uh, business-to-business type of platforms. Um, I mean, we've seen uh, some developments there. I mean, there's been, there is this B2B exchange platforms, like, you know, there are some building materials that are not used, and then you can there you know, market that you you want to get away from, get rid of your material and somebody else can buy it or you can you can share resources. So there is B2B, you know, resource sharing platform. So if you have a machinery that you are not, you know, using all the time, you can share those. And, and of course, I mean, there is, uh, in terms of B2B context, there is uh, collaboration platforms uh, where you can, for example, do joint innovation work, simulation work jointly. I mean, these kind of uh, platforms are there. Uh, and what what we only have seen recently, and that is kind of specific to some, I would say, business areas, is, is this de- kind of B2B platforms where you have data sharing. Uh, so, so, for example, the bu- buying, buying of apartments. Um, so in, in that sense, I mean, we have now in Sweden and Finland this exchange of data between between those that are selling the apartments, the banks, and then then those that are are helping in this uh, this um, kind of exchange to happen, yeah. and and it's totally digital. So all the all the paperwork works easy here. The Dias and in 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 Finland and the Tambur in in Sweden. So I mean I mean there are examples, and and, and they are beneficial, but they have not kind of. As, as as you said, you know they they have not disrupted the industries. Yeah, I think that these are these are quite good examples. That that what Robin you are basically presenting over here, Dias.fi and the the Swedish Temple are are basically an industry type of a platforms where the the construction companies and then the the real estate agents and the the banks. Are and and also the public sector is actually collaborating on the on the same platform and but and and it's it's for for selling your apartment if you want to sell your apartment to somebody else then there is a process built from downloading the data object from the governmental library from the ownership library and and then there is a process in between and when the ownership changes then the then the data object or the object this is being put back to the library for for storage uh, until there is a next round of sales for for a same apartment so and 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 these are type of a, a competition type of a platforms where also competitors are are working on the on the same platform and and this is quite it's it's not very common to have this type of a competition platforms in 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 US have you have you seen any this type of a platforms arising from US I, I haven't followed that sector I mean in the agriculture you have farmers business networks where the farmers can buy Uh, seeds or nitrogen from any from retailers across the country so that will be a small business to small business relationship but they they've had some success there but farmers actually like to go to the farm dealer the local farm dealer to trade uh non-commodity information because i think the information 
that Robin was talking about is really a quite commoditized inf- information. There's no asymmetries in that market regarding the information that's being the information about the object that's being traded. None of that is secret or gives any advantage to anyone. Uh, so I think there it's fairly transparent market and you've basically just digitalized it and put it on a platform where everybody can connect through it. Yeah, and, and of course, we need to remember that that we have a th- also a third person from from U.S. over here participating in this discussion. Maybe, Tony, if you want to sort of a, uh, give your comment on this, are companies and, and societies already too dependent on platforms? What are your thoughts on that? I'm not quite sure how one says that we are too dependent. We also are extremely dependent on oxygen. Yeah, yeah. So that, in fact, uh, we continue Or energy. Or energy. So the the reality is, I think, that uh, uh, platforms are a permanent part of our society and our economy. The question is simply going to be what use we want to make of this technology and what use we want to forbid. And having decided that, figuring out how to do either. Yeah, I I think that that's exactly and well we are I think that that we are actually dependent on 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 oxygen food and electricity and and platforms because at least over here in Finland the discussion is is all about that we cannot leave those US companies because Europe has been wanting to kick them out for some time but they cannot do it and I I don't know why they they cannot do it Well, that's a two very different questions. I mean, I think uh, our strategy expert here should tell us why. Uh, do you think we're able to, in fact, uh, uh, Europe is able to force out the American giants, or are they a permanent feature of the uh, of the economy and society in Europe? Uh, I guess they are permanent features of the society. I mean, that's the whole point again to 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 make in terms of that we are very much reliant upon these uh, digital platforms, data that is collected today, and it's more about kind of how that, you know, rules of the games are, are established, you know. I mean, it's 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 like in, you know, with any technological development that we have had in society, you know, technology has first developed and then we have come to set the rules for it. We, we discover what is go, going well and what is not going and... Uh, you know, different kind of, uh, you know, antitrust laws and and so forth, you know, are set in, in to, you know, have a fair game. And I, I think the, the main question here is all, all the time, you know, what's a healthy platform economy? What's a healthy data economy, I guess? Can it operate without any rulers? Or, you know, do we need some ruling? And, and, and do they themselves find a way to rule themselves? You know, I mean, that's that, that's, I guess, the question here overall and uh, and so i would say that you know there are very much differences between sectors here you know think of the education sector for example in finland we have a lot of public uh, you know actors being responsible for the for the education sector that might be different in another country and so but still we have private also 
actors within the education sectors. And when we have a platform, we need to operate together. So we need to find a way to operate in the logic of the competition and the logic of the monopolist that has, you know, you know, an ability to, you know, produce education, for example, in a, in a municipality, you know, without any competition. So, so how do you, you know, play out that game? So we need to find rules or, or ways to collaborate. Well, I think you've said two uh, things that interest me in, uh, in those remarks. The first is you suggested uh, that perhaps these platforms should self-regulate. And therefore, there becomes a real question of since they are to use language that Martin, Kenny, and I have, all, have both used, uh, they are, in fact, private regulators. One question is whether we basically, in permitting them to self-regulate, are ceding public control to uh, private actors, not just across the economy, uh, aspects of the economy, but in the uh, economy as a, a whole. And the second, I think, is... Uh, if they, in fact, are providing broad sets of public services and are, in effect, public utilities uh, and are, in effect, monopolies, do we want them to be private actors at all? And what kind of uh, difficulties do we trade when we trade uh, essentially a market uh, competition, which isn't existent? is Because if we can't get rid of the giants, we're stuck with them, then, in fact, perhaps uh, we want to regulate them as as uh, public utilities. I think the range of questions that really come up out of what to do uh, with uh, platforms is much broader uh, and deeper than whether and how we want to structure competition, because I don't think we're going to. I think, I think the other thing that we forget is that these are also ways that we're social. I mean, people are social through, well, they're supposed to be social through Twitter or Facebook in the sense, but they are they are ways that we now communicate with each other, and so it, obviously they are economic actors, but they're also societal actors organizing sociability, and so so I think as we think about what the platform economy or a platform society is, to to use the words of some, some others. Uh, it's much deeper than just a question about how do we regulate the economy or the economic activities, because also how do we regulate who has voice? I think this issue of whether we permit self-regulation or whether we treat them as somewhere as public utilities in between, that's the sort of at the uh, on a continuum, the range, total private regulation, uh, total public uh, control or utility in that say. But, you know, as an American, I look at the history of the railroads, which in the U.S. were, to say the least, rather important. Uh, and during, after the Civil War in the United States around 18, the late 1860s, uh, the railroads self-regulated. And the way what they actually did is they liked to maximize their profits, so they organized it uh, so that manufactured goods had a rate that meant you could ship them very cheaply from north to south, but you couldn't ship uh, from south to north the same kinds of goods at the same rates. So uh, the railroads, in maximizing their profits, basically assured and guaranteed a underdeveloped South. Now, that was partly a political product of the war, but in fact, it was so extreme that if you, in fact, wanted to use steel that was manufactured in Birmingham, you had to pay the price for steel. If you 
if you are a Birmingham manufacturer and you use steel produced in Birmingham across the street from you, you had to pay the price for steel as if it were manufactured in Pittsburgh or produced in Pittsburgh and shipped from Pittsburgh to Birmingham. Alabama. Birmingham, Alabama. What did I say? You just said Birmingham. Oh, Birmingham. Thank you. Maybe Alabama. in Finland. Yeah, right. Birmingham, right. No, Birmingham Alabama. But that's in England. That's, that's in the right. UK. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Birmingham, Alabama. So it was a clear, and the result of that was a set of public regulation. We never went so far as to treat the railroads as a public utility. And I'm not necessarily suggesting we should, but I think those are the... Uh, well, I think what John is is pointing to is different societies handled this differently. We we did re- eventually regulate the uh, the railroads. The Europeans tended to nationalize them and it had national railway systems. It was very public different. utilities. Yes, public utilities in that sense. It, so yes, but not re- so in the United States, we call a public utility often is a regulated. Monopoly firm versus, I think, in Europe, you say a public utility, you mean a government-owned organization. And so, in the United States, we went much more the regulation path, and I think in Europe, you went the nationalization path. And, you know, and then that's a question one could ask about some of these platforms. Regulation, a la the American public, what we call a public utility model— or an ownership model? Are there certain platforms that are so vital that they should be owned by the government? And to take it into the modern era, the same thing was true of telecommunications. And then, of course, we discovered that either the publicly regulated model or the public owner model uh, didn't work very well in terms of innovation. Uh, and the great innovations of AT&T in the day were call forwarding and call waiting just at the moment that the internet was actually emerging. So a competitive structure breaking apart that, uh, whether it was private or public ownership or or public regulation uh, proved to be necessary to allow that next generation of technologies to emerge. Now we maybe have come too far the other direction with platforms, which are an upshot of some of that, uh, having a different kind of power and requiring a different kind of response. I think here the I can think the essential question is uh, what are we regulating? And 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 here I would bring up that. One thing that seems to be extremely valuable in the platform economy is data. And then we come back to the point that, you know, data uh, in itself, think, for example, healthcare data uh, that is very useful for creating cures for for different uh, kind of illnesses or or, or finding different, you uh, you know, illnesses that you are having personally, you know, quickly and, and, and getting that information to you. Or then, you know, different kinds of data. Think of education data, data that we all value. You know, all everybody in the world would value from, you know, it being more kind of shareable, you know, for everybody, you know, having access to that. So here we come back to the point that, you know, our data operators, those that share data, that distribute data, should they be regulated or should they be, you know, government-owned? And I think that's an interesting question in itself. In terms of platforms and, and public ownership versus not, I think we tend to see 
think that today, I mean, innovation would, would not happen on the public side as quickly as it would happen on the private side. So here I would say that, you know, in terms of innovation, platforms are, are surely more uh, viable, you know, on the, on, on the public side to be placed. But, but data operators is a very interesting question here. Yeah, I mean, uh, so if you think back 40 years ago, more or less, the biggest data owner was the state. You know, and today that's clearly shifted. And, w- and I keep coming uh, back to a country like China. In China, you know, the state owned all of the data until recently. And now I think this is one of the things the Chinese government is facing is that Alibaba knows far more about a Chinese citizen than does the Chinese government, which is a real uh, was a real vacuumer of data compared to the to the U.S. And, and so we we have this shift where the data is now in the private sector and the public data is really quite small, even in a country as sort of radically uh, regimented as China. So I think this is this is something that I think all governments will are or will have to deal with is that the data is now, they don't have that much data on their citizens compared to a set of private sector players. Yeah, they have a different set of data in comparison to to, to, to the platforms that, that what they have or they used to have. Uh, so it's, yeah, I, I think it, this is this is sort of a interesting uh, discussion and, and, and definitely it was heating up when we when we release John from his his cage, so moving to the final sort of questions, um, what are your sort of a one or two key takeaways uh, to today's policy uh, policy decision makers and regulators in in regards to to platform economy and artificial intelligence? For me. It's the question of public versus private regulation. And by regulation, I don't mean just regulation. I also mean uh, platforms are taxation mechanisms also. Uh, They can extract value from the local, from the national. And what, what should states do about that, about private power versus public power? Yeah, I guess the question is, uh, you know, uh, dependent upon how much the state takes responsibilities uh, in terms of, for example, taking care of education, taking care of healthcare, taking care of traffic, taking care of roads, you know, maintenance, whatever. You know, how much that is public versus private, private kind of operated. Uh, uh, and and here, I come back to that platforms and data can kind of create cost efficiency or will create cost efficiencies in these systems if, if they are used well. And they can also create immense value, you know, to, to, to people, you know, in terms of, you know, better education, better health, you know, bet, better living, uh, living conditions in a city or whatever. Uh, so, so, I mean, it's, it's still a, a kind of a public-private kind of engagement that I think we need we need here to to establish but on the other hand we need the competition mechanism there and the innovation mechanism to be present there so how that is done is is very much a sector type or or market type question so you need to be attuned to those distinct features in that sector to those 
distinct features in that kind of market if you are going in there as a regulator. I yeah. think that's my yeah. take. What about John? Going. There are two two things. There's a there's a nightmare version in which all that greater data, uh, in fact, does not simply serve these publicly valued purposes such as uh, healthcare, but in fact are a way of sifting through social behaviors, whether uh, if the control is pro- private or public. So to some extent, I think we need to be very clear that the amassing of data and the ability to analyze this data gives great possibilities of control. And what do we want to do about that? You know, how do we, in fact, assure that the data is used for purposes we might uh, see as valuable rather than the ones that are clearly nefarious? Uh, The second uh, other part of that is, and here I think there's a a debate to be had, is under what circumstances uh, does this amassing of market power, in fact, ultimately block innovation. So the question of when markets create innovation, when they, uh, the accumulation of market power blocks it, can we in fact have competition in these contexts? I mean, we were fearful of Microsoft and saw Microsoft as, in a real sense, blocking uh, innovation in its day, and it wasn't able to suppress uh, the emergence of Google. But in this era, is there the, uh, such great social control uh, by platforms and political influence from those platforms that, in fact, the ability to su- markets uh, to, to suppress or block the uh, innovation capacity of markets. I don't disagree with you about the innovation capacity of markets. It's just under what circumstances do these uh, arrangements end up permitting markets to actually perform those functions? Well, let me, let me say... Innovation for who? I mean, is all innovation good? Fentanyl, a good innovation? And good for who? Uh, So I think that when we talk about protecting innovation, I think we we can all agree on that. But there are innovations that are certainly, uh, you could say, almost antisocial. So I I think as we talk about innovation, we need to think about it in broader terms. And the the last point that I would want to make on this is the issue of who has control over the applications of these tools? Because, Robin, you've mentioned, I think correctly, that there are possibilities of efficiency, for example, in the use of these kinds of tools. And But, you know, I grew up with the classic case that I've told Mark Nitzberg about often, in which they, a mayor, someone ran for mayor of Grenoble, uh, France, on the platform that there was one best way of collecting garbage and that they would, in fact, be able to, as an engineer, develop that and it would benefit the city, which is parallel to this story. The question, of course, is who's garbage? And how often? Because, I mean, I like my streets very clean. I have more power. So, you know, your garbage is going to get collected once a month and mine every other day. So uh, the question of how that set of tools is used and by whom comes back to this crucial question. So, uh, and then the nasty version of that is if the power in social and political terms is great enough, does democracy in some sense survive that so that we can have the socially beneficial benefits of innovation that you'd like to see and which I would suspect that Martin and I are sus- agree with you that they are potentially there, but not so convinced that we're going to get to them. But I cut Mark off, and I shouldn't do that. Please, Mark. I think about uh, the ethical question, the, the 
really basic ethical question and the social contract of of fair distribution of of burdens and benefits and what happens when there's this rise of, and and concentration of power in a platform and I'm thinking in 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 my mind I have this example of the of the company Instacart in the United States which uh, lets lets uh, consumers especially consumers who are uh, in, a, in a lockdown during a pandemic, order groceries from any number of grocery stores. And, and so you have this, this one organization that has algorithms that can determine through an interaction with its users what a particular user would be willing to pay for a particular commodity like milk or eggs or something like that, and then charge each user very close to the maximum they'd be willing to pay, differentiating among users, right? And, and so that's, there's this, uh, we say when we talk about a gambling establishment, the house always wins. There's this algorithm that can figure out what you're going to pay and charge you that amount and then turn around and, as Martin was saying today, turn around and, and, and approach the grocery store and give the grocery store as little as the as the grocery store would be willing to accept for those eggs, and keep the difference. And and so I I have some anecdotal proof that those numbers, and you can you can actually read this on, on online. There's a, there's, there's a a certain amount of tracking from the outside of these organizations, but Instacart takes a bit somewhere between twenty one and twenty four percent for the privilege of connecting you with your grocery store. Uh, and they they have there's a third party involved, which is the driver. And again, they find the driver and push them down and and get the driver to deliver groceries to you for the absolute minimum that the driver is willing uh, to to take. So you, these algorithms are are really like you know the house always wins. And in Las Vegas, there's a law that the house has got to return something like eighty percent uh, uh, back. From, from their one-armed bandits of, of what people put into it over the course of a single run. So you put in a bunch of money and you'll get 83% back. And there's a reason that there's a law there, right? It just, it's just not fair to have uh, a system that's so much more powerful, you know, just, just, just squeezing, right? And so we, we need to inter- intervene there. Um, I think these systems are extremely powerful and we're we're bound to lose and so we need to put put some kind of guardrails in there let me sort of finish with my final thought after listening to you for a for a while platforms always win if they if they lock in if they right? lock so in the, yeah. so what's so interesting about the platform is at the beginning it's it should be like the drug dealer give you the free drug or for near free. And then over time, as I start to lock you in, then I should raise the price to the maximum you're willing to pay for the drug. I mean, and so in that sense, that is the perfect platform situation. Thank you, John. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Robin. It has been great. Nice having you here in Finland. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for Thank having you. us.